Welcome to the show, everyone. This is Aaron Harris, and you are tuning into the Football Odyssey. Have a little bit of a unique episode today. Instead of a guest, I'll be reading you a transcript of a Q&A I had with OpenAI's ChatGPT. Obviously, there's been a lot of uh, talk about AI and ChatGPT in particular, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, I'll leave those um, comments for other podcasts and news outlets. But I think this is a fun episode, and I'd be curious to get everyone's thoughts once you listen to it. Uh, my personal opinion is that it's an interesting concept. I think in terms of football, at least, maybe it has a little ways to go. But give it a listen. Let me know what you think. And if you try it out for yourself, let me know what you think also. With that being said, here is my Q&A with OpenAI's ChatGPT. Okay, question one. Explain the single wing offense to me as if I were five years old. Answer. Imagine you're playing with your friends on the playground and you want to play a game where you run with the ball and try to score a touchdown like in football. The single wing offense is a special way to play football where one player called the quarterback stands behind some of his friends who are ready to protect him and help him score. The quarterback gives the ball to one of his friends who runs with it while the other friends help by blocking the other team's players so they can't stop them. The friends can also trick the other team by pretending to run with the ball when they're really going to pass it to someone else. The single-wing offense is a special way to play football that can surprise the other team and help your team score lots of points. Okay, so clearly they didn't really explain it to me. Maybe that's my fault for asking too generic of a, or maybe too specific of a question, but so far that's not a great response from chatbot. Question, what do you think professional football would look like today if the National Football League never merged with the American Football League? Answer, it's hard to say exactly what professional football would look like today if the National Football League had never merged with the American Football League in 1970, but we can make some educated guesses. Before the merger, the NFL and the AFL were separate leagues with their own teams, schedules, and rules. No shit. They were also competing for players and fans, which sometimes led to conflicts and controversies. The merger brought the two leagues together and created a unified 26 NFL team or 26 team NFL with the championship game between winners of each conference. If the merger never happened, it's possible that the NFL and the AFL would have continued to operate as separate leagues, each with their own teams, schedules and rules. This could have made it harder for the best teams and players to emerge and for fans to follow the sport as a whole. It's also possible that one league could have eventually emerged as the dominant, either through mergers or by outcompeting the other leagues. However, this would likely have taken many years and led to a very different landscape of professional football than we see today. Overall, the merger of the NFL and the AFL was a key moment in history of professional football that helped shape the sport into what it is today. Without it, we would likely be watching a very different game. Next question. How did the T formation change the economics of professional football? Answer. The T formation was a major innovation in the sport of football that revolutionized the way the game was played, and it also had significant economic implications for professional football. Before the T formation was introduced in the 1940s, Football was dominated by the running game, 
which teams relied heavily on the fullback and halfbacks to gain yardage. The T formation changed this by introducing a more balanced attack that allowed quarterbacks to throw the ball more effectively, making the passing game a bigger part of football. This change had significantly had significant impact on the economics of professional football. By making the game more exciting and dynamic, the T formation helped to increase fan interest and attendance, which in turn boosted revenue for each teams in the league as a whole. The T formation also led to a shift in the types of players that teams were looking for. With the emphasis on passing, quarterbacks and receivers became more important, and teams began to invest more resources in developing these positions. This helped to create new opportunities for players and coaches and contributed to the growth and professionalization of the sport. Overall, the T formation was a game-changing innovation that had a profound impact on the economics of professional football. By making the game more exciting and dynamic, it helps increase fan interest, revenue, and investment in the sport, setting the stage for its continued growth and success. So I think, obviously, it's subjective what you would consider more exciting. I think anybody who looks at single-wing footage back in the uh, 30s and 20s and a lot of the 40s too since it was still formation that was run by a lot of teams i think that in my opinion is just as dynamic and exciting to watch but i understand what it's saying that whenever the clock shot the clark shaughnessy style of uh offense came with a t formation that's when it really transformed the game which i would have to agree with that and obviously since most teams went to that formation later on in the decade and throughout the 50s um but i think that's a solid answer i think it was pretty much on the money how it became more uh but more emphasis on receivers in the passing game and kind of changed what we or what the uh, coaches were looking for in terms of athletes. All right, next question. Pete Rosella is often regarded as the greatest commissioner in the history of professional sports. If there was one major flaw in his reign as commissioner, what would you say it is? Answer. Pete Rosella is widely regarded as one of the greatest commissioners in the history of professional sports and his tenure as commissioner of the National Football League was marked by many notable accomplishments. However, there are some criticisms that have been leveled against Roselle, including one major flaw in his reign as commissioner. One of the main criticisms of Roselle is that he was too focused on expanding the league and increasing revenue, sometimes at the expense of the integrity of the game. I personally have never heard anyone criticize him for that, but I guess there may be some people out there. To continue on, for example, he is sometimes criticized for his role in promoting Monday Night Football, which is a departure from the traditional schedule of Sunday afternoon games and was seen by some as a way to generate more money for the league. Again, I have no idea if there was ever anybody who ever criticized him for Monday Night Football. If anything, people revere that brand. Similarly, Roselle is sometimes criticized for his handling of the league's drug policy. That I can agree with. In the 1980s, the NFL was facing a growing drug problem, and Roselle was criticized for not doing enough to address the issue. Some argue that he was more concerned with protecting the league's image and reputation than with protecting the health and well-being of players. Overall, while Pete Roselle's tenure as commissioner was marked by many successes, there are some criticisms that have been leveled against him, including his focus on expanding the league and generating more revenue, sometimes at the expense of the integrity of the game, and his handling of the league's drug policy. Next question. Which football player would you say had a bigger impact on their respective position? 
Lawrence Taylor on the outside linebacker position, or Johnny Unitas at the quarterback position? Answer. Both Lawrence Taylor and Johnny Unitas had significant impact on their respective positions, so it's difficult to say definitively which one had a bigger impact. However, I'll do my best to compare and contrast their contributions to football. Lawrence Taylor is widely regarded as one of the greatest outside linebackers in NFL history, and his impact on the position cannot be overstated. He revolutionized the way the position was played, using his speed, strength, and instincts to disrupt offenses and making game-changing plays. He was the first linebacker to be used primarily as a pass rusher, and his ability to get to the quarterback and create turnovers helped us set, new, helped us set a new standard for the position. Taylor's impact on the game is still felt today, as many, of the best, as many of the best pass rushers in the NFL have been influenced by his style of play. It's a very generic answer. Johnny Unitas, on the other hand, is often regarded as one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. He played in an era when the passing game was not as prominent as it is today, and he helped to change that by developing a new style of play that emphasized precision passing and strategic decision making. He was the first quarterback to throw for over 40,000 yards in his career, and he set a new standard for quarterbacks in terms of accuracy, leadership, and toughness. Many of the best quarterbacks in the NFL today have been influenced by Unitas' approach to position. So, in terms of impact on their respective positions, it's difficult to say which player had a bigger impact. Lawrence Taylor revolutionized the outside linebacker position and set a new standard for pass rushers, while Johnny Unitas helped to usher in a new era of passing in the NFL and set a new standard for quarterbacks. Both players had a profound impact on the game of football, and their contributions cannot be overstated. So clearly, Chatbot does not want to take sides, but based on the answer provided, I think it's much more likely that Unitas had a bigger contribution on his position than Lawrence Taylor did on his. Next question or it's a statement rather, write me an NFL film script that would have been perfect to be read by John Facenda. It begins with a description, opening music, the theme from NFL films. Narrator, voiced by John Facenda. The game of football is a collision of strategy, skill, and raw athleticism. For decades, men have donned helmets and pads, taking to the gridiron in pursuit of victory and glory. But for every moment of triumph, there is a moment of defeat. For every touchdown, there is a fumble. For every victory, there is a crushing defeat. It goes on to describe the action of a montage of game footage, big hits, spectacular catches, missed field goals, and jubilant celebrations. The narration continues. This is the game of football, a game of inches, where the slightest mistake can mean the difference between victory and defeat. And yet for all the highs and lows, for all the drama and excitement, there is a beauty to this game that transcends the score that goes beyond the final whistle. It is the grace of a running back slipping through the line of scrimmage. It is the power of a defensive lineman pushing his way past blockers. It is the precision of a quarterback threading the needle with a perfect pass. But it is also the heart and soul of the game that makes it truly great. The camaraderie of a team, the support of the fans, the dedication and sacrifice of the players, it is the spirit of the game that drives us forward, that compels us to strive for greatness, to never give up, to never surrender. This is the game of football, a game like no other, 
that has captured our hearts and imaginations for generations. And it will continue to do so as long as men are willing to step onto the field and lay it all on the line. I didn't think that was that bad, actually. I thought that was actually a, a, a decent attempt at uh, imitating Facenda. Next question. Write me the dialogue of a movie scene between two semi-pro football players in the late 1960s as if it were written by Quentin Tarantino. Starts off by setting the stage. The scene takes place in a locker room at the end of a game. Two players, Jack and Tommy, both in their early 20s, sit on wooden benches, sweaty and exhausted. Jack, gasping for breath. Did you see the hit I laid on that running back? Tommy, nodding. Yeah, man, that was some serious shit. Jack, I think I broke his goddamn ribs. Tommy, that's what you get for trying to run. That's what he gets for trying to run through you. Jack, I tell you, man, I love this game. Tommy, yeah, but for what? Playing semi-pro ball in front of a couple hundred people? Jack, you know what I'm talking about, man. The feeling that you get when you step on that field. That rush you get when you make a play. Tommy, yeah, I know what you mean. But what's it all for? We're never going to make it to the NFL, man. We're just wasting our time. Jack, who gives a shit about the NFL, man? This is where real football is played. This is where you leave it all on the line. Where you play for the love of the game. Tommy sighs. Yeah, I guess you're right. It's just hard, you know, trying to make something of ourselves in this world. Putting his hand on Tommy's shoulder, Jack says, we're making something of ourselves, man. We're living and breathing football. We're playing the game we love, and that's all that matters. Tommy, you always know how to put things in perspective, Jack. Jack, that's what teammates are for, man. We're in this together. The two players stand up, pat each other in the back, and head out of the locker room, ready to take on whatever the future may hold. Okay, so that was not in any way Tarantino's voice. There's no hugging at the end of it. There's a lot more profanity that needs to be in there, a lot more pop culture references. This was in no way what I would expect to see in a Tarantino movie if he ever decided to do a project like this. This would be good for a Disney movie. Next question. Let's say an offense is down by four points with 10 seconds to go in the football game, and they are 15 yards away from the end zone. The offense lines up in trips formation to the right with the tight end lined up in the slot and the running back motions out of the backfield to the wide receiver position at the left. What formation should the defense line up in and what kind of coverage should they run? Answer. In this situation, the defense should line up in a goal line defense, which means bringing in more defensive linemen and linebackers to stop any potential running play as the offense may try to run the ball into the end zone to win the game. Well, clearly they didn't really get the part where they were 15 yards away and had, you know, a trips formation, but we'll go on. For pass coverage, the defense should run a cover two defense, which involves two deep safeties splitting the fields into two halves, with each safety responsible for covering their half of the field. This will prevent the offense from completing a deep pass over the top and into the end zone. The defense should also be aware of a potential for a trick play, such as a hook and ladder or a flea flicker, which could catch the defense off guard and result in a game-winning touchdown for the offense. Therefore, the defenders should stay alert and be prepared for any kind of expected play. Well, I guess chat GPT will not be coaching anytime soon. Mm -mm -mm. Let's see. What is the most important rule in gridiron football? 
Answer. As an AI language model, I cannot say which rule in gridiron football is the most important, as different rules play different roles in the game and are all essential to ensuring fair play and safety. However, some of the key rules in gridiron football include scoring. Okay, this isn't really a good answer. It's pretty generic. What are some of the most under or who are some of the most underappreciated pioneers in the game of football from the pre-forward pass era? Answer. There were many pioneers in the game of football from the pre-forward pass era who made important contributions to the development of the sport. (coughs) Here are a few examples of individuals who are often overlooked and underappreciated. One, Walter Camp. Okay, that is not the case, but we'll go on. Consider the father of American football, but somehow underappreciated. Camp played an instrumental role in codifying the rules of the game and establishing the modern system of downs, line of scrimmage, and the scoring system. Number two, almost Alonzo Stagg, a legendary coach, but somehow underappreciated. Stagg was known for his innovative coaching strategies and was one of the first coaches to use film to analyze and improve player performance. Is that true? Did they even have film? He also played a key role in the development of the forward pass. Jim Thorpe. He wasn't around. Was he playing before the forward pass? Oh, I guess he was actually, but I don't know if he had any contributions to the rules. Number one. Okay, Jim Thorpe, an Olympic gold medalist and star athlete in multiple sports. Thorpe was a talented football player who helped popularize the game in the early 20th century. He played for the Canton Bulldogs in the early days of the NFL. It was known for his versatility and athleticism. Eddie Cochums. Is it Cochums or Cochums? Or Cochums? Anyway, a coach at St. Louis University, Cochums or Cochums, is credited with developing the first successful forward pass offense, known as, quote, the St. Louis perfect play. This innovation transformed the game of football and paved the way for the modern passing game. And lastly, Pop Warner, a successful coach at multiple universities. Warner was known for his innovative strategies and was one of the first coaches to use the forward pass as a major part of his offensive game plan. He also played a role in development in the development of the single wing formation, which was widely used in the early days of football. I would not consider him underappreciated either. So clearly, chatbot is a little off the mark here. Give me a summary of Super Bowl 57 in the style of Grantland Rice. From the frozen north, they came to Tampa Bay. The Titans and Packers in a grand display. With Lombardi's legacy on the line and Tennessee's triumphs, both bright and fine. The first half was a battle, a back and forth game, as both teams traded blows with neither able to tame. But the Packers' defense held firm with sacks and picks, while Aaron Rodgers dazzled with his throws and tricks. In the second half, the Titans fought back with might, with Henry's runs and Tannehill's aerial flight. But the Packers never wavered with grit and heart as they marched down the field in a stunning dart. With the game on the line in the final quarter's fray, Rodgers fired a pass to Adams with a decisive sway. The touchdown pass sealed the deal, the championship in hand, the Packers reign supreme in this epic land. And so it ends this grand gridiron fight, the champions crown in a sea of delight. With Green Bay's glory shining bright and clear and Tennessee's, Tennessee's valiant effort ever so dear. <laughs> well, as we all know, Aaron Rodgers did not go back to the Super Bowl and clearly Chad GPT does not understand that Devontae Adams is no longer with Rodgers and the Titans did not make the Super Bowl either. So 
I guess they did not watch, or I guess it did not watch the most recent Super Bowl. What are your three favorite football fiction books? As an AI language model, I do not have a personal preference, but I can suggest three highly acclaimed football fiction books. Number one, Friday Night Lights, not a fiction book. Two, The Art of Fielding, a novel that explores the lives and group of college baseball players and their struggles on and off the field. Okay, Although the sport is baseball, the themes and struggles are relatable to football and other team sports. Okay, that's not what I asked. North Dallas 40, the only correct answer. A novel that explores the dark side of professional football, including the physical and mental toll it takes on the players. The book is a satirical look at the NFL, and the main character is loosely based on the author's own experience as a former player. I never read the book. I did like the movie, but I never read the book. I'm kind of curious to see how the uh, adaptation process translate. I think he actually wrote a sequel. And so if anyone's ever read it, let me know how it is, because sometimes I really don't want to waste time reading a book because I feel like whenever I read it, I have to finish it. Okay. Question. Do you think outlawing zone coverage in football would reduce the amount of head injuries in the sport? Answer. As an AA language model, I don't have personal opinions, but I can provide an explanation of zone coverage and its potential impact on head injuries. Zone coverage is a defensive strategy in football where players are responsible for covering an area of the field rather than a specific offensive player. The goal of zone coverage is to take away passing lanes and force the quarterback to make difficult throws. While zone coverage does not inherently increase the risk of head injuries, the nature of the defensive strategy can lead to more collisions and hits between players. For example, when two defensive players converge on a receiver in their assigned zone, they may accidentally collide with each other or with the receiver, leading to head injuries. Outlawing zone coverage entirely would be a drastic change to the game of football, and it's difficult to say whether or not it would significantly reduce the number of head injuries. There are many factors that contribute to head injuries in football, including helmet-to-helmet hits, tackling technique, and the overall physical nature of the sport. Therefore, a comprehensive approach that addresses multiple aspects of the game would likely be necessary to reduce head injuries in football. I think I've mentioned this before on the uh, some previous podcast episodes, but I actually read that in Jack Tatum's autobiography, which is kind of ironic in and of itself. I actually think he has a point, though. I kind of wonder if you were to do that, if that would actually, uh, if that would actually work. I think if uh, another league were to ever experiment with rules, that should be something they try out. But you would obviously have to uh, eliminate the five yard rule and really liberalize contact all the way down the down the field, because otherwise you would have just athletes that would just destroy defensive backs who weren't as athletic as the receivers. Is man-to-man or zone defense more effective against the run in football? Answer. Generally speaking, man-to-man coverage is more effective against the run in football than zone coverage. When playing man-to-man, each defender is responsible for covering a specific offensive player, which can allow them to be more aggressive and attentive to the running game. The The defenders are typically closer to their assigned offensive player, which can make it easier for them to read the play and make quick decisions to stop the run. In contrast, zone coverage requires defenders to cover a specific area of the field, which can leave gaps in the defense and make it more difficult to stop the run. While defenders in zone coverage may be able to read the play and to move to fill gaps, it can be more difficult for them to be as aggressive and physical as they would be in man-to-man coverage. That said, 
Both man-to-man and zone coverages can be effective against the run, depending on the specific play, the personnel on the field, and the defensive scheme being used. A skilled defensive coordinator will typically mix up their coverages to keep the offensive guessing and effectively defend against both the pass and the run. Let's see. Who is regarded as the first linebacker in the history of football? Answer. The concept of the linebacker position in football evolved over time, so it's difficult to attribute the title of, quote, first linebacker to a single individual. However, one player who is often credited with popularizing the linebacker position is Germany Schultz. Sounds more like a nickname. I know who the guy is, though. That's such a late 1800s name, isn't it? Germany Schultz. They just named him after the country with the most popular German surname there is. All right, go on. Schultz played for the University of Michigan in the early 1900s and was known for his aggressive style of play. He would line up behind the defensive line and rush the quarterback, but was also able to drop back into coverage and make tackles on running plays. Schultz was known for his toughness and his versatility, and his success on the field helped to establish the linebacker position as an important part of the defense. While Schultz is often cited as the pioneer of the linebacker position, there were likely other players who played a similar role in the earlier years of football but their contributions may not be as well documented. I'm not sure how much earlier you can really go from that, but if there's anybody out there who actually has a different opinion, because I actually have read that he was regarded as the first linebacker, I'd be interested if anybody has a little uh, insight as if there was anyone who came before him in an unofficial capacity. Excuse me. Who are some of the greatest female gridiron football players of all time and why? Answer. Gridiron football is a sport that has been traditionally dominated by male athletes, and women's football has only recently begun to gain recognition and support. However, there are there have been some exceptional female gridiron football players who have made significant contributions to the sport. Here are a few examples. Sammy Grissafe. Grissafe is a former quarterback who played for the Chicago Force of the Women's Football Alliance. She was a two-time All-American at the University of Illinois what sport, and led the Chicago Force to three national championships. Greasefe was known for her strong arm and ability to read defenses, and she is widely regarded as one of the best female quarterbacks of all time. Two, Jen Welter. Welter made history in 2015 when she became the first woman to coach in the NFL. Prior to that, she was a linebacker for the Dallas Diamonds of the Women's Football Alliance, where she helped lead the team to four national championships. Walter was known for her speed and agility on the field, and she was a fierce competitor who never backed down from a challenge. Three, Patricia Palinkas. Palinkas was a defensive tackle for the Orlando Stars of the Women's Professional Football League. She was known for her size and strength, and she was and she dominated opposing offensive linemen, maybe offensive line woman, with her speed and power. Palinkas was a four-time All-American and helped lead the Orlando Stars to two national championships. Lastly, Liz Heaston. Heaston made history in 1997 when she became the first woman to play in a college football game. She kicked two extra points for Willamette University in a game against Linfield College, and her performance helped to break down barriers for women in football. Heaston was a talented soccer player who was recruited to play football after her regular after the regular kicker was injured, and she proved that woman could compete at, at a high level in the sport. 
Well, that is an accomplishment. I don't know if I'd include her with the other three. It sounds like she was more of a pioneer than she was a, uh, a dominant force in the sport, but we'll give it to her. And the answer concludes by saying these are just a few of the examples that many talented female gridiron players who have made an impact in the sport. Despite facing many obstacles and challenges, these women have shown that they are just as capable and talented as their male counterparts. And they have helped to pave the way for future generations of female football players. Next question. <clears throat> Excuse me. Give me a summary of the OJ Simpson trial as if you were Bill Belichick. Answer. As a football coach, my focus is always on the game and helping my team win. I don't have to say much about the OJ trial other than to acknowledge that it was a significant event in our nation's history. While I understand that the trial captivated the attention of the American public and it had a profound impact on our society, my primary concern is always on the field and the strategies and tactics needed to win football games. While I respect the rule of the law and the importance of justice, my focus is on football and that's where my expertise lie. <laughs> that might be the most accurate answer that they have given so far. And if he would have answered that way back in the 90s, I'm sure people would have applauded him. Today, I'm not so sure. Okay, if you were to make the case that six-man football is more entertaining than the standard 11-man per side form of football, how would you argue that? Answer, as an AI language model, I don't have personal opinions or preferences, <clears throat> but I can provide some possible arguments for why six-man football may be more entertaining than the traditional 11-man football. Number one, more scoring. With fewer players in the field, six-man football tends to have a higher scoring rate than 11-man football, which can make for far more exciting games with frequent lead changes and dramatic finishes. Two, faster pace. The smaller field and fewer players in the field in six-man football often lead to a faster pace of play with more open space for running and passing and quicker transition from offense to defense. Three, more versatile players. With only six players in each team, players in six-man football are often required to play multiple positions, which can make for a more dynamic and versatile players who are capable of making big plays on both offense and defense. Four, unique strategies. The smaller field and fewer players on the field in six-man football can lead to more creative and unconventional game strategies with unique formations, trick plays, and unexpected maneuvers that can surprise and excite fans. That's actually a good point. I, I've been watching a lot of six-man football recently, and if anybody's interested, there's a, a good YouTube page called Six Man Films that has six-man games even going back to the late 50s, maybe even the early 50s, but has a lot of great, great uh, footage um, that's condensed down to you know 40 minutes to an hour um, and shows really just uh, – you can actually almost see a good um, progression of the game, right? I mean – you recognize it. You you can easily recognize it as a form of football. I mean, it's not like it's so reduced that it doesn't even look recognizable. Like they run similar formations. Like they run like the I formation, split back. They have spread offenses. Um, it's really exciting to see. And truthfully, a, a lot of the plays they run, I guess, would be sort of like considered trick plays in, in a sense. Because there's one rule where the first person who receives the ball from center has to throw it back to another teammate before they're able to cross the line of scrimmage. Otherwise you would just have someone that can, you know, snap the ball 
put everyone downfield on a passing route. And then the person with the ball would just take off and run, you know, like a Michael Vick in a Madden offense, if you will. Uh, but if anybody is interested, I, I would definitely check out six man films because they have a lot of great six man football stuff on there. And you really kind of get you know, a good taste of football, but something that has its own identity too. Um, anyway, the last, last example, more accessible six man football is often played at smaller schools or in rural communities where resources may be limited, making it more accessible, a more accessible form of the game that can provide opportunities for more players to participate and develop their skills. That's actually something I kind of brought up with Chuck Klosterman when I spoke to him. I actually think that six-man football would be a better way to expand the game, especially overseas. You know, I mean, it's definitely a cheaper game. I think it's a lot more easily understood. It contains all the spectacle. That might be something I do an episode in the future, or maybe like a, a YouTube video on, because I think it's an actual real possibility, and I think it would convey the essence and the uh, overall identity of the sport in six-man football, or uh, flag football, I should say. Next question. Based on your observations, how has color commentating in football changed in the past 50 years? And how do you think the craft will continue to evolve? Answer, as an AI language model, I don't have personal observations. What can you do? Uh, but I can provide some insights into the changes in football color commentary and potential future directions. Over the past 50 years, color commentary in football has evolved significantly. In the early days of broadcasting, color, color commentators typically provided basic play-by-play -play descriptions and offered little in the way of analysis or insights. As the game in the broadcasting industry grew, however, the role of a color commentator became more specialized and more critical to the viewing experience. Today, color commentators are expected to provide expert analysis, strategic insights, and personal anecdotes that help to contextualize the action on the field. One major change in color commentary over the past few decades has been the increased use of technology to enhance the viewer experience. For example, commentators can now use virtual graphics to illustrate and explain complex plays and can access advanced statistics and player metrics to provide more in-depth analysis. Additionally, commentators are expected to have a deeper knowledge of the game and its history and be able to articulate that knowledge in an engaging and accessible way for viewers. As the game of football continues to evolve and change, it's likely that the role of a color commentator will continue to adapt as well. With the rise of streaming services and new technologies, commentators may be required to provide more interactive and personalized commentary tailored to individual viewers based on their preferences and interests. Additionally, as the game becomes more data-driven and analytical, commentators may be required to have even more advanced knowledge of the game and be able to synthesize complex information in real time for viewers. Next question, explain the history of the short punt offense, short punt offense in American football. The short punt offense was a popular formation in American football during the first half of the 20th century, particularly in the 1920s and 30s. The offense was characterized by having a quarterback lineup just a few yards behind center as opposed to the shotgun formation commonly used today. The idea behind this formation was to allow the quarterback to both pass and run the ball effectively, as well as to give him a clear view of the defense. The origins of the short punt can be traced back to the early days of football in the late 1800s when the game was still evolving and there was no standard for how teams should line up on offense. Over time, the formation became more refined and by the 1920s was widely used by teams across the country. 
One of the most famous proponents of the short punt was Pop Warner, the legendary coach who led teams at several universities, including Stanford and Pittsburgh. Pop Warner was known for his innovative offensive strategies, and he used the short punt to a great effect, after running the ball straight up the middle and daring defenses to stop him. Over time, however, the short punt began to fall out of favor as teams started to experiment with new formations and offensive strategies. By the 1950s and 60s, most teams had moved away from the short punt, preferring instead to use more modern formations like the I formation and the shotgun. Today, the short punt is a relic of a bygone era, but it remains an important part of football history, and its influences can be seen in the offensive strategies used by teams today. I actually always thought that the quarterback in the short punt was actually uh, a little further back than what it was in the shotgun. I'd be curious if anybody who is familiar with that formation could uh, give some insight because I always thought it was something that he was a little further back because it was designed to either run an open space or to punt if necessary. Okay, next question. Do you think an NFL game has ever been fixed? Answer. There have been allegations of game fixing and point shaving in the NFL throughout the league's history, but there's never been definitive proof that a game has been fixed. The NFL and other major sports leagues take allegations of game fixing very seriously, and they have implemented a number of measures to prevent it from happening, such as monitoring betting activity and investigating any suspicious activity. While there is no evidence that an NFL game has ever been fixed, the possibility of it happening has always been a concern, and the league and its partners are committed to maintaining the integrity of the game. I wonder what position you would really want to uh, corrupt if you were trying to throw a game. I mean, obviously, you'd want a referee, but I think that's a little... Uh, I don't know if a referee... Well, actually, I don't know. Maybe a referee is the most likely way to fix a game because they don't make as much as the players, so that might be the most easy way to bribe, at least. But as far as a player, I'd almost say the center would probably be the best one since he touches the play on every single down. <coughs> you know what I mean? <clears throat> Excuse me. I feel like a quarterback is too... Uh, at mercy of the, the game plan and the offensive coordinator. I guess maybe a field goal kicker too, if it came down to it. Those guys don't really get a lot of glory, though. I feel like anytime they have the opportunity to be uh, praised, they'll never pass it up. Anyway, just my two cents. Why is the split back formation nearly disappeared from the game of football? Answer. The split backs formation, which was popular in the 70s and 80s, has largely disappeared from the game of football due to a few factors. One reason is that the formation is less effective against modern defensive schemes, which often feature nickel and dime packages with extra defensive backs to counter the passing game. In the split backs formation, the offense has two running backs lined up behind the quarterback, which limits the number of receiving options and makes it easier for the defense to predict and defend against the play. Another reason is that the modern offenses have evolved to favor spread formations with multiple receivers, which allow for more creative play designs and provide a wider range of options for the quarterback. These spread formations often feature one running back and no or no running backs, which allows for more passing options and create can create mismatches against lower linebackers and safeties. Finally, the split back formations require a specific skill set from the running backs, who must be able to both block and catch passes out of the backfield. Many modern running backs are more specialized and either excel as patch catchers or blockers, which can limit the effectiveness of the split back formation. 
I think that's a fair point. I also read there was an article I feel like that was uh, written I guess a couple of years ago that also mentioned something about the uh, Tampa two or maybe it was just the cover two in general how you have the uh, the corners that are much better tacklers than man to man corners but now now they're in the flat area where a lot of those passes would go they can you know tackle them the backs pretty easily. It is a shame though I do think it's uh I think anybody who grew up obviously in the seventies and eighties watching that I mean that was pretty much you know two decades of like the standard formation and there's something about watching a guy like you know joe montana drop back and the backs release from each side of them cool formation maybe one day next question can american football be considered an art form answer some people might consider american football an art form because it involves skilled athletes performing intricate movements and strategies in a way that can be visually appealing and captivating to watch amen the sport is also a certain level of drama, tension, and unpredictability that could be compared to storytelling or other forms of artistic expression. However, whether or not football is officially recognized as an art form is subjective and open to interpretation. It ultimately depends on one's individual perspective and definition of what constitutes art. I guess because it's in the form of a contest with a winner or loser, I'm not sure if you can really consider it that much. Uh, But for for me, it's always been a game of design. And I've always felt that even if it's not an art form, you know, there's a certain artistry to the game that's undeniable. I mean, even if you just look at, even if you just go through a playbook, I think that in and of itself just shows you the kind of choreographed, uh, the kind of choreography that we would consider other art forms like ballet or, Gymnastics even as art. So make of it what you will. Next question. What's the greatest football movie of all time? As an AI language model, I do not have personal opinions, but many people consider Rudy as the greatest football movie movie of all time. Other popular choices include Remember the Titans, Friday Night Lights, and The Blind Side. Speaking of Friday Night Lights, I actually just found out that there was a a TV show in the 90s. uh, It was called Against the Grain. And that was actually the first attempt at adapting the Friday Night Lights book for television. I I didn't know that. I thought the TV show, I thought the movie was the first adaptation and then the TV show followed suit. But apparently there was another adaptation. It actually starred Ben Affleck as the, uh, I guess he was one of the high school athletes on the, the team. I've been looking through YouTube and it doesn't look like it's streaming anywhere. So if I want to see it that bad, I guess I'll have to buy the DVD. I used to, I actually like DVDs. I like how they used to have a lot of the behind the scenes footage, but the bygone era. Mm-mm-mm. Okay. Who was the best team in the continental football league? The continental football league was a minor professional American football league that operated from 1965 to 1969. During its existence, the league saw many teams come and go, and it's difficult to say which one was the best, as there was no clear dominant team throughout the league's history. However, the Orlando Panthers, let's go Orlando, and the uh, Shreveport Steamers were two teams that were successful during the CFL's years and won multiple championships. Well, the league didn't didn't last that long, so if they won multiple between 65 and 69, I guess it's pretty clear-cut. They were the best, best teams. If you had to guess, what would be the next major offensive innovation in football? As an AI language model, oh my God, they always preface that. 
I do not have personal opinions or the ability to predict the future with certainty. However, based on current trends and innovations in football, some possible areas for future offensive innovation could be the use of artificial intelligence, shameless plug, and advanced analytics to make real-time play-calling decisions, increased utilization of mobile quarterbacks, and the development of new formations and personnel packages to take advantage of mismatches and exploit defenses. It's important to remember that football is constantly evolving and adapting, and it's difficult to predict exactly what the next major offensive innovation will be. Well, I guess you don't know everything, do you, chatbot? What decade do you believe produced the best running backs? As an AI language model, and dot, dot, dot. However, my football... However, many football experts and historians consider the 1970s to be the golden era of running backs in the NFL. During this decade, several Hall of Fame running backs emerged, including Walter Payton, Franco Harris, rest in peace, Earl Campbell, Tony Dorsett, and O.J. Simpson. These players were dominant, with each of them leading the league and rushing at least once during the decade. Additionally, the uh, 1970s saw the emergence of the ground-and-pound style of football, which many teams relying heavily on the running game to take control of the clock and wear down their opponents. Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. Yeah, I guess I'd agree with that. If Tom Brady and Joe Montana are the two best players at the quarterback position, who would be the third? The debate over who the third best quarterback of all time can be subjective, as there are several great players to choose from. However, some of the most commonly mentioned candidates include... Peyton Manning, number one. Manning is one of the most statistically dominant quarterbacks in NFL history, holding numerous records for passing yards, touchdown passes, and completions. He won two Super Bowls and was a five-time NFL VP. Is that a record? Wow. Number two, Johnny Unitas. Unitas was a trailblazer at the quarterback position, helping to popularize the passing game in the 50s and 60s. He won three NFL championships and was a three-time league MVP. Brett Favre. Favre was known for his toughness and durability and big play ability. He won a Super Bowl with the Green Bay Packers and was a three-time NFL MVP. Dan Marino. Marino is considered one of the greatest pure passers in NFL history with a lightning quick release and a rocket arm. He set numerous packing, passing records during his career and was a one-time NFL MVP. That's surprising. I thought he actually would have won more. One time seems like, and that must have been his, uh, his second year when he went to the Super Bowl and had 48 touchdowns. Well, I thought he would have. I really thought he would have had more. It closes off by saying, ultimately, the answer to this question depends on the personal preference and what criteria are used to evaluate quarterbacks. <clears throat> Next question. Could a college team today win using the wishbone offense? Answer. While it's possible for a college team to be successful using the wishbone offense, it would likely be difficult for a team to consistently win at the highest level of college football using this outdated offense. Shots fired. The wishbone was popular in the 70s and early 80s, but it has largely fallen out of favor in modern football due to the rise of more dynamic spread offenses and the emphasis on passing. Additionally, defenses have become much more sophisticated in recent years with faster and more athletic players who can quickly diagnose and shut down the run-heavy wishbone attack. In order to compete against top teams, a college wishbone team would have to need exceptional execution, discipline, and talent at the skill positions, as well as a dominant defense. 
That being said, there have been successful college teams in recent years that have utilized run-heavy offenses, such as the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets and the Army Black Knights, who have run variations of the, of the wishbone. However, these teams typically use the these offenses as a change of pace or to take advantage of specific matches rather than relying on them exclusively. No, that's not true. It's not true at all. <laughs> Anytime you watch an Army game, they throw the ball like five times a game. I actually love watching those games, too, because they go by so quickly. I mean, it feels like after 10 minutes, or I shouldn't say, after 20 minutes, it feels like, uh, you know, we're really approaching halftime. There's not a lot of penalties. The clock just drips away. Maybe a better question would have been, you know, say if like a D3 or a D2 school were to run it, would they have success? I mean, obviously, there's high schools that are running it right now. I'm not sure, you know, what the highest level would be running it, but maybe uh, – Maybe Division II school would have a success running it. Maybe D3. I don't know. Question. There have been numerous spring football leagues that have failed going back to the 1970s. Give me five things a spring football league has to do to excel in today's saturated sports market. Answer. Here are five things a spring football league could do to excel in today's saturated sports market. One, have strong financial backing. The league needs to have a solid financial plan and a deep-pocketed owner or group of owners to ensure that the league can survive financially for multiple seasons. This would require a detailed business plan, including projected revenues and expenses and contingency plans for potential challenges. Two, sign high-quality players. Good luck. To attract fans and attention from the media, the league needs to have recognizable names and high-quality players on the field. This could mean signing former NFL players who are no longer under contract, top college players who are not drafted, or international players who are looking to get noticed. That might not be a bad idea. Build strong partnerships. The league should establish partnerships with media outlets, sponsors, and other organizations to increase exposure and credibility. This could include broadcast deals with major networks, collaborations with established sports organizations, or partnerships with local businesses. Focus on the fan experience, including affordable ticket prices, unique food, and beverage. The league could also consider implementing fan-friendly policies, such as allowing fans to bring their own food and drink into the stadium. I don't see that happening. Embrace technology. The league should take advantage of advances in technology to enhance the fan experience and engage with viewers who are watching games from home. This could mean innovative broad interactive broadcasts, virtual reality experiences, and social media engagement campaigns. Give me five reasons, give me five more reasons, except this time, give me a list of five changes to the game itself that can be done to create a distinct variation from the NFL-style football. One, smaller field. This could be made, the field could be made smaller, making the game faster and more exciting. Fewer players. The number of players each team could be reduced, making the game more wide open and increasing the chances of play. No punting. That's interesting. Eliminating punting would force teams to go for a fourth down, increasing the frequency of high-stakes plays and making the game more exciting. I feel like that would make it more exciting, but it could also really just make uh, make a lot of the games just blowouts. You know, if you're going for it, you know, if you're on your own 10-yard line and you don't get it, I, I mean, you're just kind of setting the stage for uh, – you're just kind of setting the stage early on in the game to really let the game get out of hand. I mean, when you eliminate, you know, if you're a team that's, you know, much more focused on defense and ball control and field position, uh, yeah, I think you're you're, you're really going to create a uh, 
a pretty big paradigm between teams. No kickoffs. Eliminating kickoffs will reduce the risk of injuries and make the game safer while also increasing the importance of offense and defense by forcing the teams to start at a set point in the field. Let's go back to the Brett Favre. Let's see. Make the case that Brett Favre is the most overrated quarterback of all time. How's an AI language model? It's like a disclaimer at this point. I can provide arguments that have been made to support the idea that Brett Favre is the most overrated quarterback of all time. Number one, inconsistent play. Brett Favre was known for his gunslinger mentality and ability to make big plays, but he also had a tendency to make costly mistakes. He led the league in interception three times and threw three more and threw more interceptions than any quarterback in NFL history. Number two, mediocre playoff record. Despite his regular season success, Brett Favre had a relatively mediocre record in the playoffs. He only won one Super Bowl, loser, and his postseason record was 13 and 11. He also had a tendency to make costly mistakes in big games. Three, over-reliance on talent. Many argue that Brett Favre was able to put up big numbers and win games because he played with some of the best offensive talent in the league during his career. He had Hall of Fame receivers like Sterling Sharp, Antonio Freeman, and Donald Driver, as well as dominant offensive alignment that protects him. Are any of three of those guys in the Hall of Fame? I, I yeah, Sharp. I know his brother's in the Hall of Fame, but I, I think that uh, I remember during his speech he said something like he was the second best football player in his uh, in his family, and I think that was you know spoke volumes because Sharp wasn't in the Hall of Fame. And Driver, I'm pretty sure is not in either. Anyway, number four, lack of efficiency. Brett Favre had career completion percentage of just 62%, which is relatively low compared to other great quarterbacks. He also had a tendency to take unnecessary risk, which only led to turnovers and stalled drives. Number five, overhyped media image. Brett Favre was often portrayed by the media as a gritty, tough player who played through pain and was beloved by his teammates. While some of this may be true, many argue that the media overhyped his image and made him out to be a better player than he actually was. Well, I guess the focus of that uh, criticism would be John Madden, but I don't know. I don't, I don't know if that really had a lot to do with it. I think it had more to do with the turnovers. It is important to note that these arguments are subjective, and Brett Favre's place in football history will continue to be debated by fans and analysts alike. Do you believe the Seahawks' decision to throw the ball at the end of Super Bowl 49 on the goal line instead of handing it to Marshawn Lynch was the right call? The decision to throw the ball on the goal line instead of giving it to Marshawn Lynch has been the subject of much debate and criticism, which is why I asked. The Seahawks were trailing the New England Patriots by four points with less than 30 seconds remaining in the game, and they had the ball on the one-yard line. Many people, including some Seahawks players, coaches, and fans, believe that handing the ball off to Lynch, who is known for his powerful running style, would have been a better decision given his short yard success. However, the call to pass the ball results in an interception by the Patriots, and the Seahawks lost the game. Obviously, I think that's a no-brainer, but I, I kind of feel like you know if, if they had if they pulled off that play, you know, would they be saying how? Stupid or what? I mean, I guess not. I guess maybe you still, uh, you know, ingest say, oh man, you know, that was a risky throw. But I kind of feel like if they, if the play would have worked, it, it would have been brilliant because they were, you know, you know, counterintuitive, you know? I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was a stupid play regardless. And sometimes stupid plays can work. Will the fullback position ever have a resurgence? 
It is difficult to predict with certainty whether the fullback position will have a resurgence in the future. While the role of the fullback has diminished in recent years due to <coughs> excuse me, the increasing popularity of spread offenses and pass-heavy schemes, some teams continue to utilize the position in their offensive game plans. Additionally, there have been instances in recent years where teams have used fullbacks in unique and creative ways, such as in short yardage situation or as lead blockers in a running game. I figure that's what they're always used for. Ultimately, the resurgence of the fullback position may depend on the evolution of offensive schemes in the NFL and how coaches choose to use personnel to maximize their team's effectiveness. Which television executives do you credit with turning college football into a must-see TV event? There have been several television executives who have played a significant role in making college football a must-see TV here are a few notable ones. One, Rune Artledge. Artledge was a television executive who was instrumental in creating ABC's Wide World of Sports, which featured college football games from all over the country. This helped to popularize college football and make it a national pastime. Number two, Mike Traeger. Traeger was an executive producer of CBS's coverage of college football in the 80s and 90s. He was known for his innovative camera work and use of technology to enhance the viewing experience. His coverage helps to elevate college football's profile and make it a more exciting sport to watch. Number three, John Hildhack, Wildhack. Wildhack is currently the president of ESPN and has played a major role in the network's coverage of college football. Under his leadership, ESPN has expanded its coverage of college football and made it a centerpiece of its programming. He's also been a proponent of using technology to enhance the viewing experience, such as the use of Skycam and other camera angles. Okay, just a couple more questions here. Has instant replay hurt or helped the game of football? Answer. Instant replay has both helped and hurt the game of football. On one hand, it has helped to ensure that calls are made correctly and that game-changing plays are not missed due to human error. This has increased the overall fairness and accuracy of the game. However, on the other hand, instant replay has also led to longer games and disrupted the flow of the game. Some argue that the constant stoppages for reviews take away from the excitement and momentum of the game, and that the process can be slow and cumbersome. <clears throat> Additionally, not all calls are reviewable, which has led to some controversial situations where important calls are not subject to review. Overall, while instant replay has had its benefits, it has also had some negative consequences that have impacted the game of football. I wonder eventually if we'll ever get there, if you can uh, challenge any play. I mean, if you only have three challenges, I don't see why not, right? There's a lot of holding calls that can decide games, pass interference. And we'll end on this question. To the best of your knowledge, who do you think was more likely to touch the ball first on the Immaculate Reception play, Frenchie Fuqua or Jack Tatum? Answer. The Immaculate Reception is one of the most iconic plays in NFL history, and there is still debate over who actually touched the ball first. According to the official ruling, the ball was tipped by a defender before being caught by Franco Harris. It wasn't really tipped, it was deflected, and it's not it's either a defender or a receiver. However, it's still unclear whether the defender was French Fuqua of the Steelers or Jack Tatum of the Raiders. Eyewitness accounts and video video footage have analyzed extensive have been analyzed extensively, but there is no definitive answer. It all comes down to an individual interpretation and opinion. So, to the best of my knowledge, it is difficult to definitively say who touched the ball first on the Immaculate Reception play. 
Well, clearly Chatbot does not like to, uh, or ChatGPT doesn't like to take a hard line in the sand and more often than not tries to avoid giving a straightforward answer when asked about uh, personal insights or opinions, but can provide information. Well, I hope you all have enjoyed this. I hope that I encourage all of you to at least play around with it. It's uh, an interesting, interesting tool. Um, but anyway, hope you all enjoy the show and uh, until next time.